Israel and Judah, just to kind of help you follow along. I'm not going to go through all of them, and this would turn into several weeks, but uh, we'll get through a little bit more of 2 Kings. So if you want to start in 2 Kings, are we good, Josh? 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7, and this, and just if you're just joining us, we are moving through the Old Testament kind of quickly, just kind of doing a bit of a survey of some things about the different books of the Bible to understand how they break down, what are the key ideas, key figures, and key lessons, really. Don't want to make this just an intellectual exercise. I want it to help your soul. But uh, we just have really two big points today, and the first one is in 2 Kings chapter 7. We finished chapter 6 last week. And chapter 7. And um, I like to call this first point, this first Bible picture, this first lesson, um, really um, what not to do in a famine. <laughs> That's going to sound like a weird idea, but what not to do in a famine. And uh, let's look at Second Kings chapter 7. Actually, let's look at chapter 6 first. There is a famine in Israel, that's the northern tribes, uh, a want of bread. In 2 Kings 6.25, it says there was a great famine in Samaria, so they're getting ransacked uh, by Syria, and their food supplies are getting cut off, and there's a great famine. And if you read through the rest of chapter 6, it's such a horrible famine that women are boiling their children and eating them. So you just give you the gravity of what's happening here. People are so hungry that they're, just, they're, they're eating their babies. Uh, so just like take that in, how horrible, how desperate people are becoming. Um, and never underestimate what people will do when they're hungry. Um, it's all, you saw that look in people's eyes after Hurricane Sandy when like the stores were empty and like you couldn't get the gas. I remember walking into a store, walking into a Pathmark, taking myself back, Ben, you, you saw people walking around, that same look in their eyes, like there's no meat, there's no this, there's no that. Now you knew this wasn't the end, but people get a certain look in their eyes and a certain fear when they think there's no food and they'd probably do anything. There was a study done many years ago, and I'm going to butcher it, but they said if you take people's food away after two weeks they'll resort to cannibalism. So I don't know how long these people were going here, but they are eating their own kin. So you know they are hungry. They are desperate. And in 2 Kings 7.1, Elisha, the prophet, makes a bold proclamation in the midst of what is a horrible situation. Then Elisha said, then, after all this horribleness, I think I just made that word up, hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. That's about 65 cents. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. So there's a famine in Samaria, but the Lord promises plenty. The Lord is promising deliverance. The Lord is promising such abundance that He's going to knock the inflation right out and people are going to be able to buy as much food as they want. Now look what happens in verse number 2. Probably like you would be. Skeptical. Because you watch the squawk box and you see the arrows on the financial markets and you see what's going on in the world. And you're like, God, how could you help me through this? And Elisha makes this bold prediction. Women are eating their kids. And he's saying, now there's going to be so much food tomorrow, you're going to be ready to, you're going to be good to go. Verse 2. Then a Lord, whose hand the king leaned, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? 
And he said, meaning Elisha, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. You know what the first thing you don't want to do in a famine? This is lesson number one from this story. Don't doubt God in a famine. This uh, Lord, this Chamberlain, this whoever he was that was helping the king kind of mocks Elisha, kind of like makes fun of Elisha, kind of says like, if God even opened up the windows of heaven, because the heaven has windows, heaven has lattices, heaven has doors, but he says, if God opened the windows of heaven and dumped this food down, yeah, right. And Elisha says, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat it. And no matter, and brethren, this is a good thing to remember, no matter what your eyes tell you, do not doubt God in a famine. No matter what the circumstances are, do not, do not doubt God. Romans 4.17 is a great verse. I'm not going to flip there. It says, God calleth those things which be not as though they were. God sees what you don't see. God sees the end from the beginning. So you and I are limited by these little eyeballs and this thing called time. God is outside of times and he sees what he's going to do. So you'd be best suited to trust him and not trust your eyeballs because your eyes can deceive you. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So we're confronted with this question. Are you going to believe the Scripture as outlandish as the promise might be? Or are you going to believe your eyesight? Now, Watchman Nee was a Chinese believer, early 20th century, and he wrote something very convicting. He said, We should inquire once again as to what the life of faith is. It is one lived by believing God under any circumstance. Though he slay me, Job says, yet would I, will I trust him? That is faith. He's saying it's easy to trust God when the water's turning into wine and the water's coming out of the rock and the bank account is full and the kids are all healthy and the sun is shining. It's easy to trust God then and say, oh, I trust God. But he's saying, is that really faith? Faith is when everything in your view looks bad and God still gave you a promise in a famine, if you trust Him then, that is faith. If you trust Him when the stone has been rolled in front of the tomb and you're hiding in the upper room, that is faith. If you trust Him when you got just but a pot of oil and you're waiting to die with your son, that is faith, right? That's faith. That's faith. Corey Ten Boom, I quote her a lot. I think she's a great, great lady, Corey Ten Boom. She said, um, never trust an unknown future to a known God. Right? You may not know what God's going to do, but you know what God's about if you know your Bible. So never trust, never doubt, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Watch what happens. Verse number 16. Watch what happens. So what, I'll get to the middle of the chapter in a second, but the food comes in and it says, and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians, so a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel. Watch it. According to the word of the Lord. It came true exactly the way God said it was going to come true. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate and the people trod upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. 
So they camp outside the city. They find out there's food there. The king says, hey, buddy, you go oversee it. And the people are so hungry, they trample this guy like people trying to get a TV at a at a Walmart sale on Black Friday, and they trample this guy getting food, and he sees it, but he never partakes of it, just like the prophet said. Never doubt God, even in a famine. Don't doubt God, even when it doesn't look like deliverance is going to come. When God says it, you can trust it. If you don't believe what God said, you're going to be like that guy. You're going to miss the blessing. He missed the blessing. He could have enjoyed the blessing, but he missed it because he doubted God. Go to Ruth chapter 1. Let me show you another example of that. Don't doubt God in a famine. Don't question God in a famine. Don't throw God overboard when things look lean or difficult or challenging outwardly. Here's another example, another illustration of somebody who forsook God in a famine, didn't trust God in a famine, and wound up paying a price. Elimelech, Ruth 1, verse 1. We talked about this several months ago. Ruth 1, 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, so this is before the kings, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem Judah, meaning Bethlehem Judah means the house of bread, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his son, two sons, Malin and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Watch it. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Verse 5, and Malan and Chilion died also, both of them. Another sad object lesson, right? Elimelech left the house of bread during a famine, and both he and his sons died. What's the lesson? If you leave the house of bread in a famine, you will lose your spiritual life. You will lose something precious. You may not physically die, but spiritually you will kick the bucket if you leave the house of bread because there's a famine. How many believers leave church which is your house of bread, right? That's where the bread of God is being served and being parsed out and being taught and being broken and shared. How many people leave church because I'm just not getting anything out of it? I just don't see the point anymore. I just, you know, me, me, me. You have a personal famine, so you leave because you're seeing things wrong and something dies on you. Very sad, very sad. That's the first lesson, right? Second lesson. Go to, back to 2 Samuel 7. Don't worry, I'm just warming up. 2 Samuel 7. I'm 2 Kings 7, I'm sorry. First lesson, don't doubt God in a famine. Don't leave the house of bread in a famine. And here's the second, second lesson. When God delivers you in your famine, when God feeds you in your famine, don't keep it to yourself. (laughs) If God gives you food in a famine, it's not just for you. It's for you to share with somebody else. Look at 2 Kings chapter 7. Consider this picture here. This is about the leprous men. And this is a great picture of you. If you're saved, let me hear you just say amen one time. All right. So this is a picture of you finding food in a famine and being exhorted to share it and give it to somebody else who needs it. Look at 2 Samuel, 2 Kings 7, 3. Now we see about the famine. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? I want to show you this picture because these people are a picture of you. The first thing we see about these people is they were dying men. 
You know who you were before you were saved? We were dying men. We were dying. You say, oh, I was healthy. I had a clean bill of health. You were dying. If God said time was up, you would have split hell like a bullet. You would have died. We were, we were sick with leprosy and we were starving without food. That's who we were. That's a picture of those people. A picture of the lost man outside the city, unable to get help, dying of leprosy without any resources. That was you and me, folks. We were sick with leprosy, a type of sin, right? We were starved for anything to help us. And we're just dying. We're just waiting our time out. Look at verse number four. I'll say, tell you something else about these men. If we say, these are the lepers talking, if we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And now, and, and if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. You know what else they were that is a great picture of us? They were desperate men. They were between a rock and a hard place. If they went into the city, there was nothing for them but famine. If they went to the Syrians, they might have killed them. If they sat there at the gate, they were just going to dry up and die. So the city was empty. There was nothing to help them. They were desperate. They were, out of, they were outcasts, right? Because nobody wanted to be around the leper. That's why they were put out of the city. And what did David write? No man cared for my soul. Guess what? When you're in your time of trouble, those friends that are partying, those friends that are having a good time, they don't want to dry your tears. They don't want to pick up those pieces. They don't want to get down in there in the muck and mire of your problems. They want to live their lives. These guys were outcasts. They were covered in sin. They were covered in leprosy. And they had been put out of the city. There was nothing in the city to help them. They were outcasts. They were not only outcasts, they were out of food. They were starving. They had nothing to sustain them. We sing that great song, Satisfied. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. You remember what it was like to try to find answers in a world that didn't have answers? Now, some of you guys got saved when you were 5 or 10 or stuff. I didn't. I got saved at 20. I, I chased the Buddhist monks down West Forth over there to find out, why'd you give me this book? Is there any truth in this? I fought with the guys that were philosophers to try to see if their theories would actually help me. I went to the weird self-help seminars to see if that would somehow get me over my problems. You know why? And all it was was famine. There was nothing that could like feed my soul. I, I sat with the Monsignor and I asked him questions and they just, it was like he laughed at my questions. He laughed at my problems. He laughed at my angst. He laughed at me wanting to study the Bible. He kind of chuckled. You know why? Because there's nothing. They got no food. I found the food. I found the food. And these guys are desperate. They had nothing to feed their soul, nothing to help them. And they're out of options. They're between emptiness and the enemy. I go in the city, I'm going to starve. I stay out here, I'm going to die. They were desperate men. You may not have realized it. You may have had money in the bank and everything was great. But without Jesus Christ, your situation was dire and desperate. You were between the enemy and emptiness. Read verse 5. Now look what happens. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. 
For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. Are you seeing this? And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers, can you picture them? Came to the uttermost part of the camp. They went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried then silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried then also and went and hid it. My goodness, by God's grace, you know who these guys became? The same thing you became when you got saved. They became delivered men. By no effort of their own. By no works of their own. You didn't die for your own sins and you showed up and you found out God died for your sins and you found out there was food and there was treasure and God says, it's all yours. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember the day you got saved when you were that leper and you came into God's grace and you said, whoa, look at this bounty like Mephibosheth sitting at a table eating bread with the king. I remember that day when the lights came on. Do you remember that? Now, some of us guys, we come home from work. You know what the first thing a guy does when he comes home from work? Open the fridge especially if you're Italian. You open it twice. Because the second time, the little food gremlins put stuff in there that wasn't there the first time. So you open the fridge. You know when you come home and something's waiting for you? Or something's in the fridge? Man, that's exciting. Amen? (laughs) Times that by about a gazillion. Right? These guys are walking in. They're hoping they're not going to get their heads lopped off by the Syrians. And there's food and riches and raiment. They hit the jackpot. And they didn't do anything. God had done something before they got there that they were able to enjoy. Hey, brethren, you were desperate men. You were dying men. You know what God did long before you ever approached Him? He died on a cross and He vanquished your enemies so that you could partake of all this bounty. And you're a delivered man. But you know what you got to become? Verse number 9. Now they're taking it and they're digging holes and they're putting it in their 401ks down there. They're putting it down there. I'm going to get a good return over here. They're going to match it. You're going to double it. You're going to match it, right? We're going to do this. And they're hard and everything, right? And it says then, it says, uh, then they said one to another, we do not well. It's a great line. We do not well. This is a day of good tidings. Hello. That's good news. That's gospel. And we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning, watch out, Light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. We were dying men. We were desperate men. We became delivered men. And we've got to become driven men. We've got to be people that are compelled to, like those guys said, go and tell. Go and tell somebody. That would be well. You want to do well, then go and tell your people what, what is waiting for you. All right, let's look at, uh, oh, let's look at that word back there in verse number nine. See what he said? We got good tidings. Amen. Brethren, what did that angel say? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. You know, we've got how beautiful are the feet that bringeth glad tidings, right? That publisheth peace, right? We have got good news. Amen. The world is predicated on bad news. The world is obsessed with bad news. The world has got like, their world is addicted to panic porn. They're addicted to it. They just want to 
find another story to freak everybody out. Like, uh, RSV, flu. Like they're losing their proverbial minds because they're addicted to bad news. You and I have good news. We've got good tidings. We've got deliverance from death. We've got hope of eternal life. We've got the cure for death. We've got eternal life. How can we sit on it? How can we bury it in the earth? How can we hide it? It's almost criminal. If we've got good tidings, how can we keep the gospel to ourselves? Gospel means good tidings. Gospel means good news. We've got good news. We've got good tidings. We've got to try to tell. You don't have to stand on a corner. Stick a track in a Christmas card, man. All right? Hand one to a cashier. They'll be too afraid to tell you no. Start in Hobby Lobby, the Christian store. You'll feel more comfortable doing that. Right, Olivia? Just start there. All right? All right, start simple, okay? All right? Listen. I'm thinking about this kid, Matt, that's my former student that's dying or very sick, wherever he is. How much do I have to hate a cancer patient to have the cure for cancer and not give it to him? I've got to hate you. I've got to think so little of you that I would keep that to myself. How much do you and I have to hate sinners that we have the cure for death and we keep it to ourselves? And we hide it. I know it's bothering you. I know what I'm saying bothers you because it bothers me. But it has to be said. We've got the cure for death. Pray for an opportunity to put it somewhere. Start leaving it places. Start leaving it in stores. Just start somewhere. Do something. How can it not motivate you if we keep? Now, you see what they said in verse 10? Look at that, what they said. Oh, no, it's verse 9. Verse 9, what they said. If we tarry till the morning light, it's not going to go good for us. (laughs) We do not well. If we keep our mouths shut till the morning, the judgment seat of Christ may not go too well for us. When the morning comes, if we tarry and keep our mouths shut and keep hiding it under a bushel till the morning light, that's a picture of Jesus Christ coming back and then he's going to put us in front of him and judge our service. If we've just been keeping it to ourselves and never trying to be a blessing, it's not going to do go good for us. That's what they're saying there. Don't you want to hear the Lord say, well done when the morning comes? Amen. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's my first child in me. I don't know what it is, but you're always seeking approval, right? You want, you want to have, I just can't imagine anything better than hearing God say, well done. Amen. Good job, Pat. <laughs> Made a lot of mistakes, but you tried. You tried. And I know I've, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I'm still making them, but we want to try, right? We're trying to move in the right direction. And if God gives you food in a famine, you've got to let others around you know. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. Listen to some of these quotes by some Christians of old. Spurgeon, every Christian, he said, is either a missionary or an imposter. Charlie went there. Charlie went there. How about Moody? Crazy Moody said, When a man is filled with the word of God, you cannot keep him still. If a man has got the word, he must speak or die. How do you get, how could you be somebody dying of cancer and have gotten the cure and realize the cure is available to anybody and not have something in you that just wants to like, you want to know what I found? You want to know what I found? You heard what I found? Right? That's what Moody is saying. If that's in you, how could you not speak in some level? Whitfield, the guy who was part of that Great Awakening, right? The man, the great preacher uh, during the American Revolution times where Ben Franklin wrote about hearing him almost a mile away, the street preacher. He said, Whitfield, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. You know how long a quarter of an hour is? 15 minutes. 
He's saying, I don't want to go 15 minutes without making sure I haven't brought up God or Christ to this person. Yikes, George. That's, that's, that's chapping my high, George. That's tough, George. Andrew Murray. Nature teaches us that every believer should be a soul winner. It is an essential part of the new nature. We see it in every child who loves to tell of his happiness and bring others to share his joys. Right? Little kids, right? They get a toy. They get a prize. They get a present. They do something. What do they want to do? Look what I got. Look what I got. Look what I got. It's almost a natural response to want to share that joy with somebody else. Do you have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart? Where? Down in your heart? Then how can you not want to tell anybody? And I'm not saying you wake up at 5 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. Like, I just can't wait to tell somebody about Jesus today. I get it. But that's why you read and you pray and say, Lord, sanctify my heart. Open this ass's mouth, you know, and let me say something that'll be good and a blessing. And just try to get some salt in there, man. You spend more time with the Lord, you're going to want to. You know what evangelism is that we see from this account? It's just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And that that story illustrates that truth. All the gospel is, all evangelism is, it's just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. So don't keep your mouth shut in a famine and don't doubt God in a famine. Let's go to chapter 8 and let's go to our second big point and it's going to take a long time, the rest of my time, and I'll quit when you're done, all right? So, second big point, and uh, if you have that sheet that Chris had with all those lists of the kings, uh, I just want to touch on, um, I guess we'll call this the litany of bad kings. Oh boy, there are a lot of them. And each of these kings are just a picture of the downfall of a nation and the downfall of Christianity, and just the downfall of this age. It's just this picture, because these kings represent the spiritual fall of God's people then and now. We're supposed to be kings and priests, right? So what I see in these kings, I could take instruction from. And it's tough. This is rough going. Now, I'm not going to go over every king, because we'd probably turn this into a several-month study, but I'm going to hit some of them. But I gave you that list of all the kings, so you can kind of get your bearings as to where we are. I'm pulling out some of them, and then next week I'll finish it, God willing. But let's start with the first one here. Let's start with one uh, named Jehoram, 2 Kings 8, 16. All right? Again, I'm jumping in. I'm just pulling out some of them. 2 Kings 8, 16. All right? It says... And in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, just that verse alone there will tell you why I'm dizzy. Because you try to square off all these kings, they got the same names. I mean, you're talking jumping Jehoshaphat. You got Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Joram, Ahab. I mean, the names are repeated. You got to go real slow, and God's trying to see how well you'll study to show yourself approved. But Jehoram... All right, Jehoram begins to reign over Judah. All right, and Jehoram's name means God is exalted. God is first. Jehovah is exalted. That's what his name means. And that's very telling because look what happens in verse number 18. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now he's the king of Judah. 
but he's following the kings of Israel. Israelites went into apostasy before Judah did, as did the house of Ahab, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Jehoram is going to follow the wicked ways of Ahab. He married Ahab's daughter. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history, a type of antichrist. Remember what his name is? Jehoram. Jehoram, meaning God is exalted. That prefix Jah means God. Jehoram, God is exalted, but he's following the wickedness. He's following evil. So look what God says in verse number 20. Look how God changes his name. Verse 20, in his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. So watch it now. So Joram went over to Zaire and all the chariots with him, and he arose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him about, and the captains of the chariots and the people fled into their tents. Jehoram follows the wicked ways of Ahab, so the Holy Spirit changes his name the next time he mentions him and just calls him Joram. He lost God. He's not God is exalted anymore. He's just exalted. And that's a problem. Here's a guy who was trying to be exalted without God. Go to 2 Chronicles 21. Let me show you the story of this guy. Go to 2 Chronicles 21. 2 Chronicles 21. Got to pay attention to the names. Let me show you the story of Joram here. Let me show you how he tried to exalt himself and forgot about God. 2 Chronicles 21, verse 5. Jehoram was 30 and 2 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Howbeit, the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. In his days the Edomites revolted from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. Then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all his chariots with him, and he rose up by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him in, and the captains of the chariots. Uh, so the Edomites revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. The same time also did Libna revolt from under his hand, because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah, and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compel Judah thereto. He's a wicked king. Keep reading. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but hast walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also hast slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods and thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day moreover the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians and they came up into Judah and break into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives so that there was never a son left him save Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons, and after all this, as if that wasn't bad enough, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. 
And it came to pass that in the process of time, after the end of two years, two years of a bowel disease, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness. So he died of sore diseases and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his father's. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and watch this phrase, and departed without being desired. Howbeit they burned him in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the kings. What a sorry end for this man. You know what the lesson is? When you try to be exalted without exalting God, you know what God's going to do? God's going to bring you down. And God brought this guy so far down, not only did it make a mess of everything, but everybody was happy when he died. Nobody was upset that he was gone. Nobody didn't even bury him with the kings. Nobody made a great pomp and circumstance for him. He departed without being desired. The one that wanted to be exalted without God being exalted wound up getting brought down low. Take instruction, saints. Take instructions. Kind of reminds me of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel wanted to be exalted without the Lord. They wanted the blessings. It's kind of like America. They want the blessings. They want the prosperity. They want the victory. They want the protection without the God that gave you all those things. You want to bless America without the God that blessed America. You don't get it that way. And Israel wanted power and prestige and the kingdom without their king. Don't work. You're going to get brought down. Don't work. Reminds me of the nation, and it reminds me of the believer. Many a believer thinks he's some kind of special. You ain't any kind of special apart from God. The thing that makes you special, the thing that's given you favor, the things that cleaned up your mouth and cleaned up your life and cleaned up your family and cleaned up your brain and let you walk a decent path and maybe have a decent job and earn a decent wage and not have to live like by the skin of your teeth anymore, all those blessings are because of G-O-D, God. And if you think you are on the top because you put in the hours or you're so brilliant or you're so talented, your name is mud. (laughs) You're just waiting for a humbling. Because Jesus said, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. All right? Don't be like that. The Antichrist is like that. He's the one that exalts himself. That's one of these things. That's a lesson. Again, we're talking about the downward spiral of the nation. We see it in the lives of these kings. He's one of them. Let me give you another one. Go to 2 Kings 9. All right. Again, I'm just pulling out some of them. Some of them from Judah. Some of them from Israel. So here's another one. Here's Jehu. You said who? I said Jehu. Jehu. All right. Jehu. Let me show you this guy. Verse uh, chapter nine, verse one. Jehu's a rough guy. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Um, and when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. So God tells Elisha to to anoint Jehu king of Israel. That's in the north. Let me show you about Jehu. Look at verse number 20. So he goes out there, and God picks Jehu just to whack people, all right? God will put leaders in power as crude and as rude and as uncouth as they may be to accomplish his purpose. 
You get, you dig me? Amen. Right? So God put this guy Jehu up. He didn't have a spiritual bone in his body, but he wasn't afraid to kill people. He said, you go whack the house of Ahab. Take care of this dirt. Take the garbage out, Jehu. And Jehu was just, he was a bloodthirsty guy. And he was just like, yeah. And he's out there. And in verse number 20, Look what it says. And he's headed towards the city. And it says, And the watchman told, saying, He came even unto them, and cometh not again. And the driving of this guy in his chariot is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. The thing that everybody knew about Jehu was he drove furiously, drove frantically, drove, uh, um, what are some of my synonyms here? Angrily, recklessly. Jehu was reckless. You know what Jehu reminds me of? He reminds me of a lot of believers today. That's how a lot of believers live. Reckless, thoughtless, prayerless, faithless, never pondering the path of thy feet. Just, you know, ooh, 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 just jumping at the opportunity, just charging out there. That's, that's a lot of Christians today. They're not praying. They're not thinking. They're not reading. They're not meditating. They're not pondering. They're just reckless. We live reckless lives. We're just charging ahead. We're going to get it done in a New York minute. That's Jehu. You see, this is the downfall of a nation. I didn't see Jehu stop to pray, Jehu stop to read, anything. He just jumps in that chariot, and he's going like a house on fire, like a maniac. It's a lot of believers today, just plowing ahead, living their life, but never thinking about, is this what God wants? Let me check in with the Lord. A faithless, reckless man. I dare say there's a lot of reckless Christians out there. And when you drive reckless, you get in an accident. Better ponder the path of thy feet, brethren. Look at chapter 10. Let me show you something else about this guy, Jehu. Chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. And he said, now he's done some of his dastardly deeds. And he's, he's bragging on this guy. He's just killed some people and whacked some people and taken care of some people. If you look at verse 11, he just slew the house of Ahab in Jezreel. And it says in verse number 16, and he said uh, to this guy, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. You know, he had a lot of zeal, but no knowledge. He had a lot of zeal. He just was happy about, oh, I got to do something for God, but no knowledge. A lot of believers have those flights of fancy. They have spells where they do something for God. They think, wow, look what I did for God. I came to church this week. I read my Bible this week. I handed out a tract this week. I prayed for five seconds this week. Look at this, God. Look at this. But they're not really spiritual people. They're not really loving the book. I'll show you. Look at chat. Look at verse 31. He did some things for God. Okay, great. Verse 31, he never a spiritual bone in his body. See 31? But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Jehu had no heart for God, no desire for the book. Yeah, he did some things that God approved of, but he wasn't a spiritual man. He was reckless. He was crazy. He was furious. He was emotional. He was wild. He was erratic. He was thoughtless. And he did some things that God wanted to do. But he didn't love the Bible. He didn't care what God said. He didn't really want to walk in God's law. Can I tell you this to everybody, including myself? God is not impressed with what you do to impress Him. God wants your heart. He wants a heart that wants Him. He wants a heart that loves His Word. You'll be surprised, folks, at the judgment seat of Christ, how the 
scales get balanced. And the people that you think are going to get all the reward may not be the ones who get all the reward. And maybe some people that just had a love for this book and a love for God and did what they could according to the scriptures. This book is going to be the determining factor of how you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. So you can go out there and build big churches and do great things and let me show you my zeal for the Lord. But you have no spiritual bones in your body that care about what the Bible says and what God thinks. You may lose it all. Just telling you. You know what God said about his people in Deuteronomy? He said, oh, that there was such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. There are countless Christians doing things for God recklessly with no love for God's law, with no care for, am I doing this the way God wanted me to do it? Am I doing what God wants? I mean, I'll just stick a cross on my building and I'll do something in there that will call it Christianity. But is there any love for the Bible? Any love for the truth? Any hunger for God? Any desire to want to do it God's way? Are you a Jehu or a Bible Christian? Keep going with me to 2 Kings 11.1 now. Oh, this one's going to get me in trouble. This one's going to get me in trouble. Get the strikes ready. You might throw something at me here. 2 Kings 11.1 And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. So in 2 Kings 11.1, Judah gets a queen. Well, they don't really get a queen. She just kills everybody so that she can become queen. And uh, she's a murdering queen named Athalia. Her name means Jehovah has afflicted or taken away of the Lord. And here's where it's going to bother you a little bit. Here's where it's going to rub so contrary to 2022, but it's just Bible. When you see in the Bible a people getting far from God, you see women taking leadership positions, women exalting themselves. And I'm not against women. My wife's a woman. My mom's a woman. My daughter's a woman. I love women, right? But there's some things that women were made by God to do. And there's some things that they weren't made by God to do. And here's a woman usurping the authority of a man and putting herself in power. And she's nothing but hell on wheels. And it's a great object lesson. As a country continues to spiral down, you start seeing people like this exalting themselves and trying to seize power. Let me show you some things about her. Uh, go to First Timothy. Uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. Go to Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. I know I'm all over the place today, but I hope you get something out of this. We'll circle the wagon soon. Deuteronomy seventeen. You know, when when we sat in the church for many years, you'd be like, "Oh man." pastor had to go there. That was tough stuff. I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to say that. I'll just preach on joy and grace and victory. And now I realize when I see things in the Bible and the Holy Spirit is like, there's nobody behind you to say this. You're the one that has to say this. I'm like, all right, I'll say it. But it's an interesting sensation <laughs> because uh, it's not politically correct and it's not meant to be hateful, but it's just meant to be kind of biblical here. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Um, the nation was supposed to be ruled by a king not a queen. It was supposed to be ruled by a man that feared God and loved the book. Deuteronomy 17 is written hundreds of years before there was ever a king, and God predicted in Deuteronomy 17, 14, and he said, 
When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him. That's my pronoun, by the way. Him, right? Right? The male, third person. Him over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So the nation was to be ruled by a king, a man that feared God. Bring it to the New Testament. The church, this is not chauvinism, it's just Bible. The church is to be led, and the Bible uses the word ruled by a man. A man a pastor, elders that fear the Lord and love the book. Let's bring it down to the family, another institution God made. The home is to be led and protected by a husband and a father, Amen. a man. You say, why? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll tell you why. It's not out of any kind of chauvinism. It's out of our stupidity. We got tasked with this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse number 11. Say, why does God put it on the man? Why does God look to the man to be that leader? Because he wasn't the leader he should have been in the beginning. Because he dropped the ball in the beginning and you made a mess, man. You got to clean up the mess, man. Come on, man. Sorry. I never get a, always need an excuse to say that. It's a good saying these days. All right. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.11. Watch this, right? Let, and he's talking about the church now, right, to a pastor named Timothy. He's talking about how church should be conducted. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. That doesn't mean a lady can't ever talk in the church building, all right? That just means she shouldn't be usurping the authority of the man and teaching from the pulpit when there's a man that should be teaching from the pulpit. Verse 12, but I suffer, he qualifies it, not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why, God? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the, trans, in the transgression. Men made the mess... By not being the leaders in the beginning, so men, you need to be the leaders now. You need to clean up the mess. And the women, God is telling you right there, are susceptible to spiritual things in a way that guys are not. Guys and the ladies are all going to say amen. Guys are blockheads. Right? You could have painted the wall a different color and hung a new picture. And, the, you know, three weeks later, what would you think of that? What happened? What? You did something? Clueless and oblivious. God made us that way a little bit. I'm helping you out, guys. You can thank me later. Women are a little more, they tend to be more spiritual. They tend to be more susceptible. The devil went for Eve. How come he didn't go for Adam? Because Adam was a weaker vessel. She needed a covering. And, you know, women tend to be kind of like, they're more emotional generally. They're more susceptible to things generally. And the devil worked her over got in her ear and was able to use her in a way. He deceived her. The guy wasn't deceived. That's the devil. <laughs> but he was, Adam was willingly in the transgression. The guy's a blockhead. Just please understand this. The human race was damned when the first woman tried to usurp authority over the first man. Adam should have been leading the conversation. She took the spiritual lead and told him what to eat, and he winds up damning all of us. You see the picture? That's God just giving us a little bit of a warning there about what to do. The Bible says, uh, go to 2 Kings 11. Let me show you how susceptible 
women can be. 2 Kings 11. I know. 2 Kings 11, 18. 2 Kings 11, 18. You understand that Baal worship thrived under Athalia? The worship of Satan, of Baal, and these false gods thrived under her king, under her reign. 2 Kings eleven eighteen. 18, when they're cleaning up the place, it says, And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and break it down, his altars and his images, it break they in pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. My goodness, Baal worship thrived in their Athalia. She was an ungodly woman. She was hell on wheels. The Bible says in Proverbs, She that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. I mean, you have a good woman, and there is, her price is far above rubies. Amen? Ladies, I'm on your side. Praise the Lord. You are invaluable. You are the blessing above blessings. But one that gets away from God, one that's like hell on wheels, like Athalia, my goodness, she just makes the whole place stink. She made the whole nation wretched. She made the whole place awful. The Bible talks about the man, the contentious woman. you rather sit on a roof than be with a contentious woman. Let her just keep dropping on you. Right? So women are very powerful to why they shape the house. And Athalia just ran the place roughshod, just destroyed the place. Athalia was related to Ahab, as in Ahab and Jezebel. You know what she did? She infected Judah with the idolatry of Israel and ran that nation into the ground. So that's a great lesson. We see that happen. Go to, we'll do maybe one more. 2 Kings 12. 2 Kings 12. We're right there in the neighborhood. All right, 2 Kings 12, verse 1. Let me give you this next guy's name. Jehoash. All right, Jehoash means fire of the Lord. Fire of the Lord, a fire of Jehovah, right? You got the prefix again, Jah, meaning God. Watch this, 2 Kings 12, 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and forty years reigned he in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba, and Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. All his days were in Jehoiada, the priest instructed him. So in the south, we have Jehoash start to reign. He was the guy that was protected. When Athalia tried to kill all the seed, they hid little Joash, and when he got a little older, they killed Athalia, and he became king. Let me show you some things about this guy. Just look at verses 4 to 9. His name means fire of the Lord, fire of Jehovah. And in the beginning of his reign, Jehoash wants to help the house of the Lord. He's on fire for God, man. I'm not going to read all these verses, but verses 4 to 9, you look at verse 4, he wants to help the house of the Lord. He wants to use the offerings to repair the breaches. He wants to fix up the temple that had grown decrepit and been broken down. He wanted to do something. Verses 6 and 7, he, he provokes the priests when they drag their feet, when the priests aren't doing. He goes, hey, how come you guys aren't getting with the program and serving God. Let's go here. And in verse number 9, he establishes the first offering box. Drills that hole and puts it over there and puts all the money in there and starts meeting it out so they could rebuild and repair the breaches. Oh, if that's where the story ended. Verse 17. Because the fire of the Lord goes out when Joash sells God out to the enemy. Verse 17. 
Then Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it, and Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent it to Haziel, king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. Watch it, and the rest of the acts of, what's his name now? Joash. He sells God out. He takes all the things of God, gives them to the enemy, and God right there, he doesn't call him Jehoash anymore, fire of God. He just calls him fire because you're not on fire for me anymore. You sold out to the enemy, man. You gave into the enemy. A fire of the Lord goes out when Joash sells out. You know what Joash, Jehoash pictures? The believer on fire for the Lord in the beginning but gets on fire for himself at the end. You want to see what this guy gets? You want to go to 2 Chronicles 24? You want to see something scary? Now, he's a little kid, and Athaliah is trying to kill him. And a priest named Jehoiada protects him. He owed his life to that man. Watch what happens. 2 Chronicles 24. He loses... The prefix ja, because he loses his fire for God. I want to know, have you lost your fire for God? You just on fire for yourself now? You're burning, burning, burning to just burning the midnight oil for who? Man, you know what I get a lot from Christians? I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm just so busy. I want to just, doing what? What's everybody so busy doing? Everybody's spending and being spent. I don't see them spending and being spent to serve God. They're doing it for self. That's Jehoash. On fire for numero uno. On fire for me. Never inconvenienced. Never putting themselves out. Never wasting. My time is valuable, Pat. I understand it. I get it. Trust me. I know. But I want to be on fire for God, don't you? I don't want to be on fire for me. I've been on fire for me. I spent a lot of time on me. I don't want to spend too much more time on me. 2 Chronicles uh, 24. 2 Chronicles 24. Look at this. 17. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, this is the guy that saved Jehoash, came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. They're like genuflecting and bowing to the king. Now... He must have started thinking, I'm something. They're kind of like almost worshiping me now. They're, they're adoring me now. Like I'm, I'm a big dog now. I've arrived now. Like, look at me. He's not on fire for God anymore. He's on fire for himself. That's a lot of Christianity. Look at this. Keep reading. Then the king hearkened unto them. You better believe he did. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this trespass. Yet, oh man, isn't God so merciful? Oh, you're so merciful, God. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada is the one that saved his life, and now the guy, Zechariah, his son, is preaching and prophesying against the king whose daddy he saved. 
right? He, his daddy saved Jehoash. You getting it? His daddy saved Jehoash, and he's preaching, and watch what happens. Which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. That must have been a good man. Hey guys, you want to study? Study Jehoiada. He must have been a good guy. He had a wife that was serving God. He had a son that was serving God. Jehoiada, must, Jehoiada is one of those small guys in the Bible that you would do well to learn from because his wife was working with him in the ministry and he raised a boy that was willing to stand up to evil when he was gone and preach the truth. Man, I would love for something. I would love for that. Right? We all love for that. Keep going. You know what they did to him? And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, watch it, but slew his son. And when he died he said, ah, the Lord look upon him and require it. What callousness! You are slaughtering the boy of the father who saved your life and you're not even blinking an eye. You're just like, yeah, let the Lord take care of that. The Lord deal with that. That's the Lord's problem. That's what he's saying here. You know what I see here? I see a man so on fire for himself that he forgot where he came from. So into himself that he forgot who saved his life. And a lot of Christians, you know, we're so into ourselves because we forgot who saved our life. And we're willing to kind of just, let's get his son out of our lives. I don't want his son around. I don't want to hear what his son has to say. God help us if that's our testimony. God help us if we're so into ourselves, we forget the God who saved us and sent his son to warn us. And we just want to get him out of here. It's sad, man. Don't ever get so into yourself that you forget where you came from. The fire of God has gone out, I think, today because the people of God have forgotten where they came from. And so in verse 23, there are enemies without. In verse 25, there's enemies within. Uh, And if you look at the end of verse 25, it says... And when they were departed from him, for they left him in great diseases, his own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and slew him on his bed and he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchers of the kings. What a sad and sorry end for a man who was on fire for God, whose name meant fire of God. Brethren, I'll speak for myself. I don't ever want to be a used to be. I don't ever want to be somebody they talk about used to be something for God, used to come to church, used to preach, used to do this, used to minister, used to... I don't want to be a used to be. I want to be a burning and shining light. I want to be on fire for God until He calls us home. Don't you? Don't you? Last thing, 2 Kings 13. This will be very fast. I just want to end on this thought here. One last king. Just look at a few verses. When he's flipping, 2 Kings 13. You see the downward spiral? Next week you'll see how much it continues to spiral down. It's like the toilet circling before the flush. 2 Kings 13. We've got one more guy here. Let's talk about this guy in the north. Very, very fast. Just a few comments about him. Jehoaz. I can't even spell it. Let me get the spelling over here. J-E-H. 
O-A-H-A-Z-H. He's in the north. So, uh, 2 Kings 13.1. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned seventeen years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. You know what Jehoaz represents? He represents the Christian who only uses God when he needs him. Like a lot of Christians. Only use God when they need him. You see verse number 3? He gets in trouble. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. And Jehoaz besought the Lord. And the Lord hearkened unto him, he's so merciful. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them, and the Lord gave Israel a savior. Jehoaz knew where to turn to when he's in trouble. Like a lot of us. We'll serve the devil, but when we get in the jam, hey Pat, can you pray for me? Oh, let's pray. Oh, can you pray for me, brother? Can you help me with this, sister? You know, we know where to find the help. We know God is there when we want him. That's Jehoaz. Verse 6. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, in sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. He had no desire or courage to do what he knew was right. He just wanted God to be his little sugar daddy. Be there when I need you, God. I'll call you. Don't call me. He had no desire to walk in the ways of God, but when he was in trouble, oh, he knew where to run. And so many saints know God's word, but won't believe it, won't open it, won't turn to it unless they're in trouble, unless they need something from God. Verse number 10. You want to see something? I'm going to end on this thought here. Last verse, 10. In the 30 and 7th year of Joash king of Judah began Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria and reign 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of uh, Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash, God's gone again. Please notice, please, Jehoaz only uses God when he needs to, and then he has a son, and his son loses God entirely. Because if you only use God when you need Him, your children will lose God completely. You hear my warning? If you only use God when you need Him, your children, the next generation, will lose Him entirely. Because what you do in moderation, the next generation will do in excess. And if they see you, mom and dad and Christian and grandpa and grandma and aunt and uncle and older Christian, because they're all watching you. Your kids and younger Christians are watching you. If they see you picking and choosing when to believe God, they're going to reject him entirely. They're going to be like, why do I need to follow God? You just, you use him. Why do I need to bother with him at all? The Lord is supposed to be using us We're not supposed to be using Him. Amen? Amen. And so, let's be the ones that God uses. Let's not be the ones that use God like some of these kings. Next week, God willing, we'll finish up and bring this to a close. But thank you for your attention tonight. I know it was a lot of stuff, a lot of names, a lot of Jajis, Jew jumping, Jehoshaphat. But hopefully, you got something out of it that, you know what? We're here for God. God is here for us, but we're here for God. And may the Lord do that which is good with us. Let's pray. Father.